You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Heartland Politics show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and today begins three consecutive shows analyzing the results of the midterm elections last week. It was certainly uh, surprising, uh, quite a few surprises across the country, and we're going to start out uh, by looking at what happened in Illinois. Uh, on Tuesday. And there's nobody better to do that than my friend and uh, political reporter with the Chicago Tribune and Chicago Blackhawks fan extraordinaire Rick Pearson. Rick, thanks for taking the time. I know you're probably wiped out like everybody else is. Uh, Robin, any time for you. Appreciate it. Well, we had heard a lot going into this election about big Republican gains. And of course, Illinois is more of a blue state. But there was talk here of Republicans uh, doing well. Uh, what kind of in the in the big picture? What kind of happened here, uh, and and why? Well, you know, I think one thing is uh, here again looking at some of the polling. Uh, I, I think in some respects, maybe some of that was an attempt to overcorrect from previous polling errors that didn't measure Republicans. And talk that Republicans, you know, don't participate in polls or want to express support for anything Trump-related. So I think, in some respects, the polls may have inflated the uh, Republican strength that was anticipated here. Second, um, I think the even though uh, the polling had showed that crime was not a, a top concern. Uh, you still had candidates up and down the, the Republican side all uh, going after the Safety Act and cashless bail and that kind of thing. And it, that still didn't really resonate with a lot of people. And, you know, kind of the feeling, well, you know, it's not happening in my backyard or, or it might be, you know, well, that's Chicago's problem. It's not not a problem here. And, and while inflation and the economy are always pocketbook issues are always, you know, a, a top issue for voters, we're kind of in a strange recession at this point. We're, we're in a, a, a place where, yes, inflation is high. People are paying more for everything. But the fact you've got, you know, nationally, you've got record low unemployment. You've got low unemployment in Illinois. So it's not like people who are out of work and trying to cope in a inflationary recession economy. You've got people who, you know, can still pay. They're stretching their pocketbook, but still pay and are not necessarily taking that out on Democrats as, as a position. So that leads you to the other thing. And I think that's abortion. And I think you know, I kind of believed, and you've heard me say this before, where we talk about voters and short attention span theater. And while you had that ruling back in June, and it looked like a, a lifeline to Democrats at that point, I kind of wondered if that would, in essence, kind of fade and, and fade away. And in fact, it didn't. And it helped drive uh, Democratic turnout, helped drive uh, women to the polls. It helped drive in Illinois, those suburban women who are traditionally perhaps a little bit even 
right to center on fiscal issues, uh, but are certainly moderates on social issues. And you saw a basically a blue wave <laughs> rather than a red wave that uh, hit the suburbs, uh, with uh, which are, I think, now you can almost classify them as Democratic. And here we are, you know, two decades ago, that DuPage County, right next to Chicago, right next to Cook, that was that was the hotbed of Republican activity in the state. And now you have even a bluer wave going out into the exurbs of places like DeKalb County, Kendall County. McHenry County is still a Republican, but just narrowly. So I, I think abortion really became a, a significant factor. And while you know, perhaps Republicans applauded the court's decision on Hobbs at that time. It's what cost them in Illinois. So, you know, down here, uh, and it was just ad, TV ad after TV ad uh, on crime. And I was just picking up around here, and again, this is different. I'm, I'm rural Illinois. Um, but it seemed like it was really making a difference and penetrating uh, but what you're saying is that abortion trumped inflation and crime is the key issue that tipped uh, the election in Illinois. That's what I believe it to be. Uh, I really do think so. And, you know, it's kind of like when you look at, uh, you know, we talked about 20 years ago in a hotbed of Republicanism being in the Chicago suburbs, and now that, that hotbed is downstate, but there's, you don't have the vote numbers to make that an effectively uh, compatible way to compete with Democrats. And with abortion, uh, you know, that, and, and Pritzker, of course, was driving that issue home as the guy effectively at the top of the ticket. Um, and crime, if you think about it, Robin, that crime theme was playing out months ago, even before the primary, uh, with the, the money of uh, Richard Irvin and his attempt to. Uh, rejected attempt to to win the uh, governor nomination. He was playing the crime theme back then. And so, you know, after a while, and you're a better expert at this than, than I am, but after a while, that messaging just starts going in one ear and right out the other. Yeah. And, and in this slew of advertising that you talk about, ad on top of ad, on top of ad, on top of ad, uh, the, I think the messaging just if it had any effect, I think that's what kind of got short attention span theater and, and, and went away from people's minds. Yeah, the TV ads were mind numbing after a while. And I do think I do think that people just kind of tuned them out after a while. Um, but you brought up uh, uh, Richard Irvin and, and it leads me to my question about the um, the governor's race in Illinois. Uh, some had thought, eh, you know, maybe maybe there's some dissatisfaction with Pritzker that might be close. It really wasn't. And the key event may not have been Tuesday. It may have been the primary. And it appears that the Democratic strategy of getting involved in the Republican primary seemed to have paid off. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a strategy that, that we can, you know, spend hours debating on whether it's appropriate or not of, of Democrats meddling in Republican primaries to uh, basically Pritzker spending with, with the Democratic Governors Association spending about $34 million dollars to basically pick your own opponent. Um, but it, having said that, the ads that were run uh, with to, to the backhanded way to get Bailey the nomination, the ads that the Democrats ran 
were really no different than the ads they ran after he won the primary. That, you know, the, the, he's too extreme. He's uh, too extreme on abortion, on guns, on down the line, on, on gay rights, uh, across the map. Sure, that played well to the Republican base, but the Republican base is not big enough to win a general election. Yeah, and it, it definitely didn't. Uh, the suburbs are the key area in the state now, and it didn't, it, it kind of backfired there. Um, well, you can only call Chicago a hellhole so many times as the Republican yeah. nominee. And, you know, certainly you have a, a, a fair number of suburbanites that, that had moved there because they wanted to get away from Chicago and don't necessarily have any great love for Chicago. But at the same time, they know that for the most part, their jobs are dependent upon the success of Chicago. Uh, the, the, it's the state's success is dependent on the success of Chicago. And for a, a, a person from very far Southern Illinois with a, with a, uh, a draw, <laughs> pronounced draw, uh, to start labeling the state's biggest city a hellhole, a man who actually, you know, was part of legislation that called for separating Chicago from the rest of the state, to have that kind of anti-Chicago bias, uh, you, you can't do that in the place where most of the votes are. It's not It's not a way to grow the base, and it's not a way to generate success. There's really, I mean, when you look at what happened, most of the statewide candidates, the Democrats won. It was about 60 percent, I think, right in that area of the vote. Um, the, the last I checked, uh, you mentioned the uh, congressional races up in the suburbs. And here again, um, it looks like the strategy of Democrats using gerrymandering very openly uh, seemed to pay off on our congressional delegation. Yeah, I mean, let's face it, that's why our primary was in June instead of March, because the Democrats had to wait for the pandemic-delayed census figures so that they would be able to gerrymander a map and do it in a way that would withstand a court challenge. And at the time when they drew that map, uh, and, and sure the goal was to get uh, 14 Democrats and three Republicans in that map, I think even they would probably admit that 14 was a goal, not necessarily a guarantee. And so, you know, when you look at the 17th, and Eric Sorensen, uh, you know, and Esther Joy King, who proved herself to be a very effective candidate against Sherry Bustos two years ago, and and uh, she never stopped uh, running for election in 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 the area, versus Eric Sorensen, who's you know a, a known figure but not a politically known figure. I, I think that to me was one of the uh, surprises uh, in in looking at the election was that Democrats obviously knew what they were doing when they draw the map and also were able to, you know, take advantage of, uh, rather than having headwinds from the economy, but taking advantage of uh, the shirt tails of uh, abortion support to, to win that seat and win 14 to three uh, majority in the congressional delegation. You're listening to Artland Politics on WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. I'm your host, Robin Johnson, and today it's always a pleasure to have on Rick Pearson, uh, who's the political reporter for the Chicago Tribune, uh, knows the state very well up and down, is uh, uh, very familiar with the Quad City area. And uh, we've been talking a little bit about the midterm results 
from Tuesday. This is the first of three shows I'm doing on reviewing the midterms, one on Illinois, which is today, and then one will be on Iowa, and then one will be nationwide. I've got some good guests lined up to do that, and we're starting off with the best, Rick Pearson here. Thank um, you. Actually, I I think it's the the you mentioned about my support for the Blackhawks. It's almost like the Democrats. They're doing better than everybody thought. You know. <laughs> yeah. That's always nice to exceed expectations. Exactly. Well, um, uh, just I mean, we can go through each race, but was there any nuggets? I mean, it was almost a little boring, and that like I say, each race they the, the Democrats were right around sixty percent of the vote. Uh, Republicans were around forty. Any surprises? Anything in there that stood out to you? Well, you know, when going back to the governor's race, I kind of figured if you if you wanted to place odds that forty percent was kind of the over under for Bailey, uh, and I think he ended up getting around forty two percent, close close to that. So, I mean, that's that's kind of performing with expectations there, but knowing those expectations, it's not a win, and. I was uh, another race I was kind of concerned about as far as uh, watching it and thinking that it could flip was the third district uh, Illinois Supreme Court seat uh, with Mary Kay O'Brien against a Republican appointed incumbent in a newly drawn district that tends to be not just uh, south suburbs of Chicago, but goes you know into downstate. And obviously, with the red trends of downstate getting even stronger, uh, and and Mary Kay, who was uh, was a former state legislature legislator from Grundy County, and, and then a judge, uh, certainly uh, displayed that uh, she can still retail campaign in, in those areas. It's not just the TV stuff, uh, but she knows you know in that that kind of a rural slash suburban type environment uh, that that she knows how to campaign well. And for Democrats to pick up both those seats and, uh, you know, expand their majority on the state Supreme Court, um, that's that's a significant factor. And, and of course, you know, Supreme Court was, because it was not a statewide race, those two races, they were regional races, but the dynamic of control of the Supreme Court, such an overpowering uh, kind of issue, especially as people now look at the courts these days more and more as not necessarily uh, judicial fairness as much as political influence. Um, that was one where I was very curious to see how the result would come. I was going to ask you about that because set this up for our listeners who may not have been aware, uh, especially out here where we didn't, uh, I don't believe we had a Supreme Court race, but uh the court was originally four to three Democratic? Correct. And, and, now uh, and by the Constitution of 1970, and it's, and it's been four to three since, I think, the 1960s, but the state constitution of those seven seats, three are mandated to be in Cook County. So you can automatically, Democrats get a three-seat uh, three head start right there. And in, as part of the um, drawing of new boundaries that, goes on every 10 years. We haven't redrawn the boundaries for the uh, judicial Supreme Court districts uh, since 1960. And this was the first time. And unlike uh, the, the gerrymandering and, and things that we know about as far as 
there's still the requirement for legislative seats to be uh, equal size uh, with population. Judicial districts don't have to be that way. Yeah. And uh, that gives a, a bit of an advantage to uh, the, the people who are drawing the map lines. I didn't know that. That's interesting. And so the Democrats now have a five to two majority. Is that correct? On the... Yes. Okay. On the Supreme Court. And for our listeners, again, it, it's important. They've made some pretty important decisions recently on uh, gerrymandering, on pensions. Uh, and it'll continue to play in a, a big role, as Rick just said, as more of our policy decisions seem to be played out in the courts. Um, something happened Tuesday that I would have bet just about anything uh, wouldn't have happened. Uh, and that is the Democrats appeared, and, and you can you can correct me here, um, the Democrats appeared to add to their majorities in both houses of the General Assembly. Um, I can remember talking back last summer, The Repub uh, some Republican sources of mine were pretty giddy. I'm not going to name them, uh, but <laughs> they were thinking they had a shot to ride the crime issue to even take a majority of the General Assembly. Well, I think it would that would be optimism at its greatest to take a majority because, you know, Democrats went into this with a, you know, 73-45 uh, advantage here uh, over Republicans in the Illinois House. And so their true goal was to knock Democrats down below 71 votes. 71 is the supermajority. That's the veto-proof majority. And... I, that was the more realistic kind of goal here. But what happened instead is it looks like in the House that 73-seat uh, number is going to go as high as 78 and perhaps 79, further relegating Republicans into super minority status in the Illinois House. Now, over in the uh, Illinois Senate, which is 41, going in was 41 uh, let's see, 18 to over Republicans. So substantial, substantial advantage over Republicans in the Senate. Republicans may have picked up one seat, okay. but still being still being looked at, I think, as we talk, is the uh, Dan McConkie from the Chicago suburbs, the Senate Republican leader. Um, I'm not sure his race has been decided yet. So you've got some interesting dynamics there. And of course, you know, speaking back to the House here, uh, Jim Durkin, who basically has been the House minority leader for about 10 years, uh, day after the election announced that uh, he's stepping down from that leadership post. He was not going to seek re-election for it, going to stay in the legislature. But um, those diminished ranks of Republicans that are going to be part of the legislative caucus are also going to be uh, perhaps continuing this further right, right ideology, and even though their numbers continue to decline. I just saw a piece today that one of the candidates, possible candidates to take over the Republicans in, uh, in the House is Tony McCombie, who's from the Quad City area here. Right. Represents a district. And that's going to be an interesting dynamic, too, is because, you know, for uh, speaking generally, that you've had the leadership representation on both sides has been Chicago, northern Illinois, nor uh, the suburb area. And now, um, given where the Republican votes are, um, 
you know, this this does provide an opportunity for uh, downstaters to be able to step up to, you know, enhance leadership positions because they're representing Republican constituencies. Um, before we move, move to maybe looking looking ahead, um, I got to ask about the workers' rights amendment. I had more people come up to me and ask about that in the last 10 days, people that just didn't know about it and wanted to hear uh, both sides of it. Uh, did that, does it look like that's going to pass or did it fall short? It, it looks like, well, the supporters, which are the unions, uh, they're confident that it will pass. And uh, it, it's it's hovering around uh, the threshold right now, but um, we haven't seen all of the vote counting yet. But they're they're confident that where where the votes are still out, that it, it will come in and will succeed. But you make a very good point about uh, the you know what what does this do? And you know in basic, it enshrines a right to collectively bargain in the state constitution and its attempt to prevent these so-called right to work laws, which do not require a person to be a union member to work on jobs. And it's inspired basically because of Bruce Rauner, the previous Republican governor, who was very uh, anti-union, anti-public employees union. And that was part of the impasse that led to the state not having a budget for two years. So this is kind of a, a follow-up on that. And yeah, it is confusing in some aspects. And there's been disinformation that was posted around it. But I think one problem here that you cited is people saying, that, you know, what's the pro, what's the con kind of thing. We're doing constitutional amendments a little bit differently now in that everybody used to get a pamphlet in the mail, every registered voter. I remember that. That, that was the pro the pro and con of, of the constitutional amendment. Now everybody got a postcard in at the, from the Secretary of State with a lengthy URL that, that you're supposed to copy and type in to your computer, and there you'll find the pro and con. Um, I understand we're safe in paper and we should all, you know, be for that, but not, I don't think, at the cost of an uh, uninformed electorate. I remember that. I wonder if our listeners on the Illinois side do. You got a little blue, it was blue. Yeah, a little blue pamphlet. I forgot about that. Um, so, what, um, Looking ahead, uh, I guess the two issues that stand out uh, now with uh, Democrats, again, in a commanding position in Springfield, there was talk, uh, uh, again, about the crime issue in the Safety Act, very controversial bill, that the Democrats may have to go back in and reform that some. Do you think they'll still do that? We got veto session next week, or are they going to feel empowered, and maybe this is a vote of confidence that we don't have to do anything? Well, supporters of the Safety Act are certainly saying, yes, this shows that the fears uh, that were raised by opponents are unfounded, that the public supports this uh, as a, as a, as a as supports this legislation or new law. Basically, it takes effect in, in January 1st. But I do think there are still uh, a number of Democrats who want some guarantees in here. I mean, one of the things about uh, are, are people going to be massively released from their local county jails on January 1, as the opponents say, and there's nothing in that law that does that, but maybe to further define and clarify. I mean, part of the problem is, is that the opposition was able to spin things a lot of ways because of some of the nebulous ways that the, the law was written. And so, 
I think there will still be an effort to try to uh, tighten things up in this law, but not to the extent that it starts a backlash from the original supporters of it. This was a pillar uh, of the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus. Um, you know, they're they're a very powerful force in the General Assembly, and once you once you gain something, you know, you don't want to give give in and give back. So this will be a, a very interesting dynamic at play as, as the veto session goes forward. Any other issues you see on the horizon real quick? I, we got time for a couple more questions. Are they going to, due, due to the impact that abortion had, are they going to look to codify uh, Roe versus Wade abortion protections? Well, it, that already is enshrined in state law. And I actually did ask Pritzker about uh, is this something maybe we should uh, do in constitutional law? The reason I asked that question was it could also help drive Democratic turnout in a presidential year. So, so I learned that trick from Karl Rove traveling with W that put abortion, uh, abortion uh, uh, referendum on the ballot in Ohio to help drive Republican turnout. So uh, he, he did not say anything to that fact. But what he did talk about abortion was doing more, and obviously he is all in in support of abortion rights, doing more to uh, help uh, provide access to people, not just in Illinois, but from states that have banned the procedure, uh, helping them be able to come to Illinois, uh, doing more for providers uh, and, and allow them to increase their service capacity, as Illinois has seen an increase in uh, out-of-state women coming to Illinois for the procedure. So I, I do think we'll, we'll see that. Now, whether it's going to be in the veto session or whether it's in January is still somewhat uh, debatable, but I, I do think we'll see that. Also ahead, too, is uh, uh, a ban on assault weapons. And this has been talked about a lot, and some people have said, well, if Democrats have this great majority, how come they haven't enacted it? Well, not all Democrats are, are from areas that are in support of that. Uh, and how you write the bill, of course, is important. How do you define what an assault uh, weapon is? Um, but I do think that's more likely to be approached in January, where you need a simple majority requirement of 60 votes in the House and 30 in the Senate to pass a bill rather than in the veto session, where if you want something to take effect immediately, it requires that super majority that we were talking about and would basically require all Democrats to be on the same page, which they're not. Final question. Uh, I've got about 30 seconds here, Rick. Um, there was a lot of speculation right off the bat in Pritzker's um, um, uh, speech election night about uh, some some terms uh, shifting his focus nationally. Is he? Do you think he's... Uh, Gearing up to run for president if Biden doesn't? Well, he says no. Uh, I, I mean, he, he says no. But if anybody who listened to that speech uh, as he was talking had to come away with, I mean, it was so obvious in its nature that this was not a speech designed to talk to Illinois voters. This was a speech designed for voters across the nation that he bills himself as a warrior to fight Trumpism uh, from, a, from a true Democratic foothold state. Rick Pearson, uh, political writer for the Chicago Tribune, has been my guest today on Heartland Politics. Rick, as always, uh, thank you for your insights. Uh, very good, and we'll see. We'll see what happens here in the next year. It'll be interesting, and I'm sure we'll 
I'll have you back at some point to talk politics and maybe a little hockey. Very good. I'm always up for the hockey part. Thanks, Robin. Heartland Politics is a production of WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can hear more on the Heartland Politics podcast, available at WVIK.org, in the WVIK app, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.